0: This is the Danger Closed Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next novel, Only the Dead, hits shelves this spring and is available for pre-order now. Go to officialjackcarr.com, click on Only the Dead for a sneak peek. My guest today former CIA case officer, Doug Pattison. Fascinating guy. Really enjoyed talking to him. And uh, he does some stuff in the entertainment industry these days. So without further ado, let's get after it. Doug Pattison. Doug, what's up, man? <laughs> How you doing, buddy? Good to see you. I'm so glad we're we're finally doing this. Uh, yeah,
1: exactly. Me too.
0: And I gotta tell you, are you New Hampshire or Texas? Where are you right now?
1: So so I'm in I, I'm in New Hampshire right now. Uh, well, I live in New Hampshire right now. I'm currently in Virginia for the week, um oh, with some family cool. stuff going on, but uh, and from Texas, hence the Texas spy dad name. Yeah, so yeah. yeah.
0: Got it. Got it. Oh, man. Well, this is really my favorite part about doing a podcast um, is that uh, I get to sit down and not have a computer open in front of me, not have emails coming in, not have text messages coming in. And most of the time, people leave me alone out here in the podcast studio. (laughs) Uh, But uh, there are very few times when you can just sit down for like an hour and a bit and just talk to somebody these days, even if you're at lunch with somebody, you know, one of the two most likely is going to be going to that phone, you know, for Exactly, yeah. A, a it's, it's tough to
1: unplug and feels good when you do.
0: Yeah. And see, it re- sounds weird saying unplug because obviously we're uh, on audio and video in separate states. But uh, but those interruptions is what I mean, those constant interruptions yeah. from, from the electronic devices. But uh, man, this is awesome. Um, let's go and start at probably the road to the CIA. I mean, sure. so many people are interested in that, me included, um, especially in the time that that you went in, because um, your influencers probably were popular culture, uh, right. I'm guessing, that informed what you knew about the CIA. But what was that path into uh, the CIA and going to the farm and becoming a case officer?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, it, it's interesting. So like many folks in my generation, you know, uh, we had parents who were kind of the Vietnam generation mm-hmm. and, my, and grandparents who were the World War II and Korea generation and you know so so I I grew up listening to those stories of service from from them uh and then this this phenomenal movie came out called Top Gun right and and like so many of us that got us thinking about how we might might serve and my grandfather had been a fighter pilot in World War II he flew p-47s over Europe and and uh you know had talked a lot about that with me you know as I was growing up so Top gun grandfather made me start looking at uh at flying. And and so I went and talked to the the Marines about wanting to be a Marine Corps fighter pilot. Uh and and the the Marines would have got me, except for the contract you had to sign to to get into to flight school. And I wasn't, I couldn't envision guaranteeing I would do anything for. A solid six or seven years, whatever the contract term was after after flight school. And so it, it just got me pulled back a little bit and thinking uh. about other ways to serve. And the the CIA was recruiting on campus. And I thought that's that's kind of odd. And I'd I'd grown up reading, you know, the the Fleming books, and I'd grown up reading Lynn Dayton, you know, and the spy spy games or uh, set match, et cetera, and all of these these novels. So I thought, okay, that's kind of interesting. I like languages. I want to be overseas. Let me go talk to the recruiter. And the recruiter was there recruiting primarily for overt roles, and looking for engineers and analysts and and uh, folks like that. And I I. I I was not performing super well in college. <laughs> Where were you at school? I was at the University of Texas.
0: Okay. So You're having you a good know, time I, out there.
1: Yeah. I was having a great time in college. <laughs> and, 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 you know, at least some part of college is, is sort of focused on that. Uh, I may have had my priorities opposite of what they should have been, mm-hmm. but, but uh, you know, I was holding my own. But the recruiter looked at me, and he's looking at this less than stellar resume and said, yeah, I need analysts. I need engineers. I need scientists. He goes, the only thing you might be set up for would be being a, uh, a case officer. And I said, Well, what's that? He goes, Well, they're the guys that spend all their time overseas, you know, meeting meeting bad guys, recruiting sources, you know, running spies. He
0: goes, I mean, hadn't you read Clancy yet at this point? I mean, yeah. see, this is like early 90s, right?
1: It, it, this was late 80s.
0: Late 80s. So there's a couple of Clancy books out. There's like four, maybe even five. What yeah, uh you hadn't read those I'm, yet?
1: I had I read some of them, but remember Jack Ryan was an analyst. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my exposure to the case officer world was, uh, was small, but I had, and some of the terminology was stuff that I was still processing. And I, but as I listened to him, I said, yeah, that's the only thing I'd want to do. Mm. Like I, I don't want to be stuck at headquarters in a cubicle, you know, with a thousand other people that are wearing tennis shoes on the subway because their feet hurt, mm. you know, sort of thing. And he said, well, I, I'm not sure you'll make it through this process, but I'll, I'll kick it off. Uh, and, and he put my resume in the hopper and that just started that long series of interviews and psych exams and polygraphs uh-huh. you know, that, that goes through. And it's, it's a lot longer now. It's pretty fast back then, you know, but it was probably seven months, uh, before I, I got the call yeah. that said, Hey, come on over.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So it's, uh, there's another program, I won't say the name of it just in case it's sensitive or something like that where they take you and uh if you have a background that they want and they kind of fast track it a little bit and yep. that's the one that's the one that i went through um so you still do your lifestyle poly you still do your psyche you still do your medical course like that but it takes a couple of those things that you have to do kind of out of the process just really speeds it up a tiny bit um so so that was interesting to 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 go through um, so so yours was the longer one i'm guessing yeah. and you went through no, that
1: it, it was and you know i was 22 one or 22 years old, I didn't have yeah. tremendous amount of life experience out there, you know, um, was bringing language skills and people skills with me. What was your language? And my language then was Spanish.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I, I had um, fluency in Spanish, um, but what that really showed them was that I had the ability to learn other languages uh, Aptitude. as well
0: yeah aptitude they're looking for that's yeah, an, and, exactly and so is this your senior year or is this like junior year we're going to like a job fair or something like that, no, that how do you even it, find it out was, that they're doing it do they have like a, a flyer at the as you're going by some sort of a, a board on campus or something
1: It's exactly right in fact it's, it's a funny aspect of the story because they had you had to sign up for interviews in the career center and everybody signed up on pieces of paper that were hanging on the wall for your interview slots <laughs> and um and so they said to me now this this job path you're pursuing is a, a covert path and this, this list of um, job interviews here is an overt piece of paper that says you've applied for a job in the CIA. So we're, we're going to have to reject you. Mm. And you're going to get a letter, which I still have today, which That's is cool. that rejection letter. And then you know a few months later, and it's always a little curious to me, I have this letter from them on letterhead with my job offer on it. That's cool. You know, so both delivered to the same address. So it's kind of a silly,
0: <laughs> hey, silly yeah, little yeah. shell
1: game to work through. Yeah. But yeah.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I have my uh, acceptance letter still, um, but it comes from uh, because of the path that I was on. It comes from a uh, different corporation type thing. It's really, it's kind of cool. Okay. I have a whole the packet and everything upstairs, and it was pretty, it was interesting to to go through that uh, that process. I ended up staying in, obviously stayed in the military instead, um, uh, and finished out out there but uh but it's an interesting process to go through i love my experience working with the agency downrange uh learned a lot Uh, it forms a uh people have read the novels they know that there's a a touch point with the cia that uh um really is uh you know foundational to a lot of the characters in the in my books we
1: we always had a great time working with team guys uh as well and and there's a, a close relationship between the 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 two organizations and and, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, one of the more fun aspects of training I got to do was, uh, I got to go to gun site, um, nice. with, with, uh, a bunch of team guys
0: nice. and,
1: uh, and we had some good bonding, uh, during that, that training and, uh, you know, few, few ranges that had, uh native populations of rabbits had a few less rabbits too
0: after those <laughs> nice those yeah it's a great yeah. spot to go out and, and train uh so you do this you're going through this process and uh do you have a backup or do you uh, as you're going through this process are you putting all your eggs in that basket really wanting it or is it kind of like hey if i get accepted i get accepted otherwise i'm gonna go you know do whatever else
1: yeah no, that's a good question i graduated senior um uh, mid, mid-year senior year so i actually had to uh take a job uh and i so i took a job in a in a uh, sales management pipeline training pipeline for a manufacturing company that was international in, in nature because I knew I had this strong international bent that I wanted to, to pursue anyway, and um, and so I, I took that job and and as, uh, I was in it about three months when I got the uh, the offer from the organization. I said to them, "Hey guys, I got this other thing that I'd actually started the process for a while ago that's that's come through and and it's going to involve me serving my my nation." uh in uh various capacities and they said go for it we're, we're always here oh, uh if cool. that
0: changes you know it almost sounds like a, a front company or a shell company the way you describe it universal exports uh yep. yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it does sound
1: awful similar to that yeah uh, uh, and it and it's interesting what you can do with those sorts of things
0: exactly what uh so what's your path then you uh, get on a plane fly out to the east coast uh show up at the farm like as a brand new kind yeah. of recruit so, type deal or yep.
1: I packed up a car and uh, drove across the the U.S. from Texas to to Virginia. I had um, met somebody who was going through the same recruitment pipeline, and you know they tell you don't talk to any of the recruits, don't exchange any meaningful in- information, yeah. and of course as as uh, I think anybody that's Wired to become a case officer, does you you find those boundaries and immediately begin to figure out how you can push them to mm-hmm. to maximize your 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 uh, benefit, and so you you could tell who was probably going to make it through this program or mm-hmm. not. So I actually found my roommate who I was going to live with. As he was going through the same uh, interview pipeline, and we both were confident enough, eventually that we were going to make it through the process, that we exchanged info and said, "Hey, if we do this, let's let's be roommates." And so we we moved in together uh, and began that training pipeline. Initially in Northern Virginia in an, in, a, in an outbuilding, before ultimately uh, traveling to the farm for multiple training iterations.
0: Nice. see they kind of take you up, give you like your uh, introductory briefs and that sort of thing, kind of more yep. up north. And then you go down to the farm and and get into the, the nuts and bolts of it.
1: Yeah. History of the organization, how it functions and and its role overall in the IC and those sorts of things and the various roles within the uh, agency. Because, it, you know, the, at that point in time, understanding what all the different jobs were and what did it do was was. um a significantly more difficult exercise to explore than it is today right. and so you you spent you know a, a few weeks doing that before going down to a course that they don't run anymore but it was um called satsi at the time and it was uh the spe- special operations tradecraft course or mm. uh, as we called it outward bound with guns
0: yeah Nice. Did, uh, did they put you in different, like, uh, uh, different parts of the CIA before you went down to the farm? Like, Hey, here's what the analysts do. Spend three days there. Here's what these guys do. Spend three days here. Like that sort of a thing or a week here, a week there as an intro. Yeah, that is-
1: Yeah, they did that. It all depends. So there were rolling start dates and then they would accumulate enough candidates into a class and then, you know, that class would begin kind of the formal Mm -hmm. thing. So depending upon where you rolled in on, they would have filler stuff like that. And then you would have a series of formal functional assignments. Uh, Where for you know, I believe at the time it was three months. You'd rotate through some of those roles, and you had to you were required to rotate through roles that were not going to be core to what you were doing, so that you would gain uh, an appreciation for that Uh, before. uh, And some some it was before the farm, some it was uh, after the farm, and and all of that was before ultimately going to the farm for the formal case officer, um, you know, core course the trade course.
0: Nice. Is it all kind of. Uh, rolled in together now. Like, do they go down there and do the do the driving and do uh, some uh, basic weapons fam stuff and uh, do all that sort of thing as part of that uh, case officer training? Now,
1: yeah, a lot of that weapons fam stuff has has gone away unless you're going to serve in a in a war zone uh, mm-hmm. specifically or in a high threat
0: uh, environment. They took the a fun away. out of it. Are they budget cuts? Are you guys having some problems over there with uh, with budgets? It I know it's pretty small. It, you know? I
1: mean, it did seem silly to send somebody through weapons training when they were going to spend most of their time in European capitals.
0: Well, you never know. It's fun, though. It's fun. And it's the bonding part of it. It's like that um, shared experience that you have with somebody that uh, went through five years before you, 10 years before you, like you all had this shared kind of experience. I think there's a lot of value in doing those things, even if you're probably not going to use them later on. But knowing that, hey, I went through the same thing that uh, so-and-so working at headquarters or so-and-so working in Nairobi or whatever, like we shared that experience together. So no matter where you're coming from around the country or what your background is, if you were in a. A, a lawyer or if you were in the military or if you were just out of college now you have a shared experience you know so i think you're And bad
1: shared love and or hatred for some of the same instructors that, uh, <laughs> and
0: right? you had some old school instructors so you're going through so what year are you uh going through the farm now
1: so uh, that was, uh, 90,
0: 91, 91. So uh, you having some old just, school guys. You're having some people yeah. that worked in the eighties, in the seventies, probably in the sixties, even, um, like that's uh, earlier. Yeah. Earlier. No, we, we, wow. we
1: would have some guys that had, that were right on the, you know, entering in, in 1948, 49, 50 wow. timeframe that were now, they were in new attempts and, and helping out. Um, just had, and in fact, one of our instructors in the, um, special operations tradecraft course just passed away. Um, I saw today,
0: that. today yeah. or yesterday, yeah. Dutch. Dutch, I saw that. Uh,
1: yeah. Dutch just passed, and, and he was a hugely 86 impactful. years
0: old, I think, right? Is that what he yeah. was? Yeah, wow. And he was like and, 36 with the agency, and he was a uh, he was like well born overseas, and then uh, what he went to U.S. Army Special Forces eventually, and then into the agency for all those years. I mean, my goodness,
1: wow. And and he was awe inspiring yeah. to us as we entered and, and looked at him, and and you know, saw. Saw his, you know, war wounds, and saw the man he'd become, and his heart for for this nation that had adopted him and taken him in. It was it was incredibly impactful. And my my mentor in the agency was a gentleman named uh, Jim Dunn, mm-hmm. and he 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 served over the course of uh, six different decades, starting in the fifties, ultimately um, into the two thousand tens, you know, as a either a contractor or a a, a career employee. Um, you know, teaching and sharing his knowledge and experience with others. And so you had some of those long-term people that just uh, kind of poured themselves into you.
0: Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, guys from the inception of the agency up to uh, today, and if they weren't there in maybe 1947, 48, they certainly knew people who were, uh, if they were coming in, in the early fifties or mid fifties or early sixties. I mean, what an incredible time. And it's interesting
1: to talking to guys that, that from other organizations like your own or or uh, CAG et cetera, who all kind of has some of those overlaps, and we'll we'll share stories about, hey, oh, did you stay in X Y Z barracks uh-huh. when you were there? And they're like, oh yeah, seven seven ten years beforehand, they were in the same barracks, and, and it's so it gives that sh- that shared um, sense of bonding across not just the agency but with others that have um, uh, run in the those uh, overlapping circles.
0: Yeah. Did you uh, did you have a part that was hard for you down at the farm, or was it uh, was it all kind of fun because you're a college kid and you know you're now, you're just kind of kind of young going through this thing? Or did you like the case officer stuff and the building rapport and the the role playing stuff? Or did you love the I mean the driving? is awesome. I mean, I love yep. uh, the driving is just so much fun. Uh, it's hard for the, like the military to take the fun out of that. Like they take the fun out of everything, diving, jumping, you know, whatever else they try to take the fun out of absolutely everything, but they can't really take the fun out of the driving courses. Cause it, it's just, it's too difficult. <laughs> they gave up trying to take the fun away from those things. But what's uh, what stands out to you from your time at the, at the farm is either being, uh, impactful or, or fun or difficult.
1: I, I thought it was all fun. I, you know, I may have had an unhealthy sense of ego uh, <laughs> at that time, so I didn't find any of it overly difficult uh, or or um, overwhelming. It was it was just fun. I loved to play the game. I loved to understand how the instructors were evaluating us throughout. It was sorry to see you know the students that washed out wash out, but you know never had a doubt that it that I was gonna end up being one of those. It just was was sheer fun. And one of the interesting thing was there were some military folks going through a similar course along the side. And, and so we got to share some notes with them. And you're right, the military took all the fun out of their course.
0: <laughs> they excel at that. And,
1: that down to you know the expense report requirements were were radically different, and they had to you know get permission to buy a to pe- a tube of toothpaste yeah. you know while on a, a surveillance run you know sort of thing, and um and we you know we didn't have to worry about any of that stuff, so it it was just sheer unadulterated fun uh, all the time.
0: That's so great. Uh, yeah, so great.
1: It, 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 every one of us ultimately is like, I cannot believe we're getting paid right. to do this. Um, and and you know we. We we took what we were going through seriously, but we just we had so so much fun. We're so excited to ultimately get overseas and and start doing it. And one of the most impactful moments, maybe for me, was actually we were in uh, training uh, when the wall fell.
0: I was going to ask you about
1: that. And I remember we had just come in from an FTX, so we're all still in our BDUs and we're cleaning weapons and um, you know all this sort of stuff. And we're looking at this black and white TV in the barracks. Uh, that was, you know, on rollers, casters that, you know, like just this old piece of crap TV. And we're watching the 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 um, West Berlin and East Berlin citizens just start to tear down that wall. And we're going, well, what does this mean for us? Like, th- that's who we joined to go uh, chase, fight mm-hmm. against. And it, it, is it over? Do they not need us anymore? And of course, we di- we didn't know at that moment. Um, you know, that that uh, the CT role would grow in such the way that it did. And we didn't know that that, the, you know, the Russian um, threat was not going to go away.
0: Right. I mean, you're coming in right there on the cusp of that change. Um, and, uh, and that's interesting that you they were there seeing that happen with your class. Uh, so I was you about that. There's some very, obviously, seminal moments that are transitional periods in the history of the CIA. Um, obviously, end of World War II, uh, yep. disbanding essentially this organization then the, the fight to stand up another one and who's going to lead it. Uh, 1947, obviously 48. Uh, then we have some things in the fifties that are fascinating. And then you have a Bay of pigs, probably fairly transitional um, Cuban missile crisis, probably uh, fairly transitional uh, timeframe. Then you have the church committee hearings in the mid seventies Pike committee. Um, and then you have uh, the, the fall of the Soviet union and then we Pike. have nine 11. Uh, so I think th- those ones are kind of the ones that stand out to me, just, uh, doing a brief scan of, uh, yep. of history from the, from World War II up to, up to today. Um, but you're there on the cusp, right? During the time that one of those is happening. Um, exactly. and you're, and, and that's, that's an incredible time to be there
1: with the day our class graduated. Our very first classmate went overseas the next day oh, wow. in response to uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Wow. And, you know, he had he had been a uh, he was an older guy in our class who was um, an experienced Arab linguist who had uh, multiple years of SF experience, mm. as well as multiple years of NSA experience before joining us as a case officer. So, okay. you know, for for him, it was just a natural plucking to take him and throw him out into that. And, yeah. and, uh, and that began our, our, our focus on this new shift really uh, into what this, this world was going to become. And a, a bunch of us ended up uh, getting focused on the the CT threat around the world in various regions uh, and start learning how to to work that ct target in ways that, because it's different than than working the classical targets
0: yeah so that's counterterrorism for people that are that are listening in um did you guys do static line while you were there at uh did you have to do that or no
1: so the class before mine had several injuries uh-huh. in that class so they actually would not let us do um static do our do our five jumps and we were crushed by that because we really really <laughs> wanted to other other they reinstituted it a little bit later yeah. um in four years five years after us um, so we, we got to do all the tower jumps and all that sort of okay. stuff, but we did not get our static line jumps in and it, and it's, um, that, that's, <laughs> I'm always a little sad about it.
0: <laughs> it's not very difficult. You just stand on a chair and jump off the chair. And that's pretty much, you know, what it, what it's yeah. like. Um, but <laughs> yeah, the army takes, uh, like three days and packs it into three weeks. I think that's how we described airborne school when we went to yeah, exactly. Fort Benning. That, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> just jump. You know, um, that was maybe time mo- to do it.
1: I was going to say one of the most fun things though is that we did do was um, we because of our our Vietnam War history and working so much with um, insurgent forces um, we do we did at that time spend a lot of time teaching you how to work with and supply uh, those those forces mm. so we uh, we got to spend a lot of time learning how to kick bundles out mm. of C forty sevens nice DC threes and and these these were planes that had flown on D Day wow and so here, here we were you know, 21, 22 years old with our heads hanging out the door of, you know, this plane looking for your LZ that you would, you know, meticulously built on the ground and, and uh kicking bundles out of it and that sort of stuff. So we got to do some fun stuff, Stabo, uh, you know, that sort oh, of geez. stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing. Describe Stabo to people.
1: So, well, in this particular case, uh, we had had a, um, a long exercise and the first four folks in- we're gonna get um, put into stable harnesses, and I don't remember the, the acronym for for what stable stands for, but basically seats, you know, uh, webbing, uh, and you clipped into a rope, and then the helicopter lifted us up out of the the canopy and and flew us um, down. Through this area that that the farm is located in, to, as our extraction from this this mission, and the rest of the folks either had to hump it out or get trucked out at the end. So there was a nice. there was a benefit to being one of the first four <laughs> in, uh, nice. and I, I was fortunate enough to be one of those four, first four to complete that particular course. So we we but we got to fly over this this particular part of this training area for better part of forty five minutes you know, hanging from the bottom of a helicopter, just looking around at the view, which was pretty nice.
0: awesome. There you go. It's, it's interesting that you're using uh, aircraft that flew on D-Day. Uh, Tom Rice is a 101st Airborne uh, Division guy who first in his stick out over Normandy on D-Day. And uh, he just passed yep. away at age 101 um, a yeah. few months back. So my daughter and I went to his uh, his memorial. We, took, uh, we, were, we were part of a group with the Best Defense Foundation that took him to Pearl Harbor um, for the 80th anniversary. Yep. And then we went to Normandy with him this past June. So that was really special for my daughter to hear those stories from him, not just read about them or hear it from somebody else, but to sit down across the table from him over a meal and hear him talk about jumping in uh, to Normandy on D-Day. Incredible.
1: It it, it is incredible. To me, it's the power of storytelling is so important because it's it's where we learn to envision what we ourselves are capable of. Mm, okay. I think it's most powerful within your family where should you should
0: write that down. Uh, I should write that down. That's a good one. Where
1: you hear from your own family what what the people that share blood with you were able to do when asked to do these super hard things. But as a nation, you know, these were 18, 19, 20 year olds that we sent overseas to go do this incredibly difficult thing. And and they did it. And they didn't have any different training than you know, this generation of 18, 19 year olds have that that they are of that same stock when when needed they can call upon that and step up and do it
0: yeah that's incredible it's great for my for this new generation to have a touch point with that generation and learn about those sacrifices firsthand and be more appreciative of the freedoms that we have here and what was sacrificed so that we can have those freedoms and options and opportunities. Um, so when you're finishing up at the, at the farm, do you know where you're going or do you know um, generally what uh, part of the world you're going to be doing or what kind of a mission you're going to be doing? Or uh, are you just training up as a case officer to kind of needs of the Navy, right? like needs of the CIA? Like what, what is it? Uh, where during that process do you start to figure out or learn where you might be going?
1: Yeah, I think I, think I, I describe it kind of as like a mix of, you know, um, Greek Russian in college and a draft, right? So, you know, all of the, all of the case officer candidates are stack ranked, you know, mm-hmm. based on performance measurements that we have almost no visibility to throughout the process, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, whether you're doing well or not, but you don't know if you're better than Joe or, or worse than, than Cheryl. Um, but you, you know, you, you tend to have a somewhat of a sense and throughout these interim assignments along the way, you've built some relationships with folks who may be evaluating whether you're a good fit for their region of the world mm. or, or their particular mission set. And, um and then you get to say what your desired choices are mm. uh, to, to go to and, and, and go do. And, you know, for some folks it's, Hey, I want to be in a place where I can wear suits all the time and, and learn, you know, the classical romance languages, i.e. Europe and, and walk those dark, you know, somber, rainy, whatever, you right. know, Prague streets. And for others, it's, I mean, we, we had classmates like, I want to go to the, um, you know, th- the dirtiest nastiest places I can and go, go, you know, live on that adventure line and, and yeah. everywhere in between. Yeah. And, um, and they do their, they do their job needs of the service always comes first So, you know, um, I clearly came in with strong Spanish skills. So of course they sent me to Asia.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like the military. Yep. Exactly. Exactly how it works. We had a fluent Spanish speaker over here. All right. Let's send him to, uh, to Arabic and send him to the middle East or, you know, whatever. It's just kind of like, "Ah, what? It's just how it goes. (laughs) Uh, so did you, uh, did you put in for something and then did you get that or did you, what was your, what was your path out of, out of the farm to your first, uh, and you call it a posting or what do you call?
1: Yeah. Assignment or posting. Yeah. Um, we, we, we use both kind of, um, both interchangeably. Um, and yeah, so I put in, I, I ended up getting what I wanted. Um, so I immediately finished my training as a case officer and then got slotted into a um, a new track for training um, to give case officers who were going to the non-Arab world specific counterterrorism training um, to work the counterterrorist target in those areas of the world. So they took four of us out of my class and began to put us in this pipeline that included... Um, basically the ability to go to almost any school we wanted to go to on the, on the public side of things to learn uh, more driving skills, more shooting skills, you know, all that sort of stuff. We, we went and spent time with other agencies. We could just kind of do what we wanted to do. Um, is this this the gun sight training?
0: Is this when you did that?
1: That's when we did that. And And then we went to
0: BSR too, I bet. West Virginia. Exactly. Nice. That's a good one.
1: and Colonel Cooper was still at uh wow. gunsite as well which was pretty pretty special that is pretty cool um and we went and spent time with other federal agencies working this target uh as well and uh overseas TDYs temporary duty assignments um on uh with specifically focused on the on the CT work so that we began to understand more about this nature of work long before ever our our first uh, assignment was and so um really built that extra skill set in uh along the way and we went through um an early version of, i'm trying to figure out how to how to describe it but an early version of the training pipeline for a group of people um that most folks only know about because they watched a movie called 13 <laughs> hours
0: okay got it yeah yeah I could and say. so we, <laughs> we
1: we went through that and that's where i first uh, got to meet billy Waugh. wow wow um and and rick prado uh and and guys like that. And Rick was my boss for uh, uh, a while during that time frame.
0: Got it. I think he mentioned that to me. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. He has that new uh a book out came out last year. Fascinating. What a story. Uh it's a great book. Yeah, amazing guy. Very cool. And then Billy yeah. Waugh, of course, has a book too. Um uh it was Hunting the Jackal. Hunting the Jackal. Yeah. And Hunting uh, the Jackal, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what an incredible story. I almost had him on the podcast and uh I think he might be sitting a little up there in age.
1: Yeah, um, he, he is, I think, um uh, he's ninety-two or ninety-three, yeah. um, and uh, and you know these days are pretty rough for him right now. Yeah. Um, we we all stay in touch uh, with one another and and uh, get updates uh, kind of on a weekly basis on that right now. So yeah. best wishes to Billy out there. He yep. um, he was actually an incredibly impactful man. I mean, we got to work overseas together as oh, well. Wow. Um, and Legend. Um, for
0: anybody, look, anybody, uh, listening right now, who doesn't know who Billy is, just, uh, just Google it, you know, use the, use the search engine and a bunch of pop up, but then, uh, hunting the jackal is his, uh, is a book that he wrote. Um, but incredible guy. And at that age, obviously, uh, he's, he's been through a lot. Yeah. He's done a lot for this and, nation. I,
1: I just remember, um, I, with that, the billy got me home one night his voice his voice on the other end of a radio got me home on a night when i wasn't sure i was going to get home that night and um i will forever be grateful for
0: that wow amazing Amazing. So you go through this pipeline, you get to uh, get to go meet Colonel Cooper and uh, shoot a gun sight, get to uh, do some evasive uh, offensive driving techniques at BSR. um, And then you go off to your uh, your first posting, your first assignment. Um, Yeah, I
1: do. I go. Well, I get ready to go in the middle of all of that. In the middle of that training, uh, I meet a girl. And, you know, I'm like, I'm I'm about to deploy in five months. I'm meeting this girl. Cool. This will be fun, but nothing serious. And within probably three weeks. Uh, we knew that that we wanted to get married and that this like my whole world had just changed with this. And uh, along the way, obviously, nobody knew I worked for CIA. I had a job that I was supposed to tell people, which is what I had told this young lady when I when I met her. Uh, and so we began to immediately try to figure out how do I tell her that that's not really what I do? Because, uh, you know, Trust can be viewed as important in a pending marital relationship. (laughs) Uh, And and while you can have all the reasons for it, uh, that makes sense. um, Sometimes you still gotta find a way through that. So that that was actually one of my first real challenges in the agency was how to break cover with the woman that would ultimately become my wife and a CIA officer as well in her own right. Um, and, and so that was, that was interesting. And then, and we did it, got through that and I deployed and she stayed home until our wedding date five months later. And we lived apart for five months, came back and, uh, and got married and she, and I moved back overseas as a, as a couple now.
0: Oh, wow. That's awesome. Uh, and was she an analyst or did she, uh, did she go to the farm or.
1: So she was, uh, she was in a role that we, we now call a targeting role, Target, okay. um, a targeter. Mm-hmm. Um, she was not, uh, at that time, uh, they, we, she was a Sioux, you know, staff operations officer, um, and she was 100% CT focused uh, for most of her career. In fact, she was um, in, working for Mike Scheuer uh, and those folks that were in that first group of people chasing bin Laden in uh, the early 90s, before even before the, um, the Alex Station was set up.
0: Oh, wow. Because Alex Station came like mid 90s. Is that right? Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. So she, she was there as it was stood up and we were, we were at, by that point in getting uh, ready to go on our second uh, overseas assignment to a denied area post. Jeez.
0: So that, so it was the first one that, I mean, you, you don't have to obviously say specifics, but um, so you're brand new, you did all this training. You have a, you have a, a girl waiting on you back home type thing, the classic. And then you deploy to this, uh, area of operations, uh, yep. with a CT focus, uh, for five months. And and what are you doing? Are you doing some classic are you using this case officer skills or are you doing more of this new yeah. track type thing?
1: I'm, I'm, I'm using case officer skills. I'm meeting a, a series of assets that were handed over to me. Right. So one of the, one of the ways your training continues is you pick up, um, assets that others have recruited, um, and you learn to run them. And, um, uh, figure out the kind of the mechanics of actually meeting with somebody overseas, keeping them safe, collecting intelligence, writing it up and, and sending it back. Uh, and then all along the way, you're looking for your own uh, recruitment targets against kind of, uh high priority um you know requirements coming out of uh headquarters in in DC on a range of topics because you know along the way the Russians are still out there um and the the KGB is still operating um the Chinese are still out there that you know all of those classic targets remain there the Iranians the you know um North Koreans so so you, you may have a focus but you're also looking for those those other targets and we were in a uh, high threat post with an active um terrorist uh, uh, threat against uh, our organization, against Americans mm-hmm. in specific, um, and uh, my, in fact, my my job in that posting had opened up because an individual before me had ended up on a targeting list. So that mm-hmm. meant he had to to leave the country, and that gave me a slot that I could go uh, jump into. And it was kind of a wild west sort of environment. You know, natively lots of lots of guns in the environment. So you you know, um, it, it was an interesting and really really fun time
0: yeah and then so you do that five more what, what lessons did you take from that so it's a brand new guy essentially so in the military you'd be the the new guy in the platoon type of a deal uh what do you take what lessons are you taking from this first uh assignment do you like it or are you like hey i'm going to be in this organization forever i love this i have a mission i'm supported this is important um like what do you or are you like hey, i'm going to do this a little while and then get out or what, what are you thinking at this point
1: at that point i'm still not sure i'm 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 now seeing some of the shine come off of the uh. role a little bit okay. um i tell the story of um you know i had a, an asset that i was picking up who'd been a longtime asset in the the um uh counterterrorism space and it became my job to uh terminate him and obviously in our world in the in the novel world the world terminate means something very with specific. extreme prejudice yeah, we we'll terminate with extreme prejudice, and in this case, it just means terminate the relationship between the the organization. <laughs> and there's there's a process,
0: and we're taught how to do all this. And what's the um, movie? Take him out. Take him out. You want me to kill him? No, right. Don't kill it. Take him out for dinner. You know, whatever that was. Yeah. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> so it, it, but but you're you're told you got to go terminate this this asset, and and so and he saw it coming long before I did. He, mm-hmm. he knew where this was going. And so one of the most important lessons I learned was um, to to be willing to learn from, from not just folks inside, but learn from others outside that uh he he made me a more compassionate, more empathetic officer. Mm-hmm. Um through facilitating this process in ways, knowing that it was, um, I, 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 we didn't honor ultimately some of what we had promised him at the front end of the relationship because of budget cuts, mm-hmm. and um, and figuring out how do you sell that concept to somebody in a way without selling a little bit of your soul mm-hmm. was that was that first time where I went up, oh, gosh, I, I'm not, I don't like all of this, um, and and that particular asset though uh, handled it with incredible grace and and uh, it was it, it taught me a lot through how he did that.
0: Yeah, sometimes I kind of wonder, you know, some of these people that we, uh, whether it's host nation forces or, you know, whatever else, like, have they not... uh uh, studied a bit of history and seen some of our track record, which isn't necessarily the greatest in a lot of cases, uh, Vietnam, yeah. Kurds, uh, latest example in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Um, yeah. Uh, or have they, you know, that sort of a thing, even popular culture, you know, even popular culture, some of those, uh, which used to be one of our most, uh, powerful exports, uh, from Hollywood from let's say the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s around the world. That was what people understood the United States to be, uh, which is why a lot of people came here, uh, because of the land of opportunity they're seeing in these, in these films through popular culture. Um uh, um, but a lot of times, it also showed uh, intelligence agencies not necessarily having the best interest of the particular asset at, in mind, um, and that obviously causes drama on screen and in the pages of novels and that sort of a sort of a thing. Um, so I'm always kind of I remember being in the back of a, a Hilux in 2003 in uh, in Afghanistan and uh, talking to somebody who had, uh, had fought the he had been uh, you know Mujahed against the Soviets and the whole the whole thing, and then in my head I'm thinking man we're going to leave here one day and right. what's going to happen to this guy and his family i mean he's riding around on the back of a hilux with me obviously an american um anyway i was just always i, I, I remember thinking of even back then but uh but that's but that's interesting that that uh, your asset was not um surprised right he,
1: he was not surprised. And, and it's, it, to me, one of the most fascinating things is, is that tension between an organization and the individuals that are in it, because there's no, I don't think there's any one individual that would have said, yeah, this is the right thing to do, but collectively as an organization, people recognize that it was the right thing to do. And so then it's up to individuals to execute on that right thing to do, even if um, it's, it's challenging and, and, and hard to do. And I think that's, it's, It's tough. Um, And you're right. It is tough to make that next promise to the next guy that we're going to follow through on on what we do. I do think there are lots and lots of uh, examples of where we have also followed Mm -hmm. through on some of those things, um, those promises to to take care of folks. And on balance, I think uh, on an individual case by case basis, we have honored that way more Mm -hmm. than we have uh, fallen through. On a, those collective examples that we look at, whether it's Vietnam or Afghanistan or you know um, uh, Cuba or some of those, it's when the it's those group things mm-hmm. where we tend to to have uh, fallen short yeah. based on political realities.
0: Got it. And when did uh, when did you understand what the case officer's job was? Uh, was it as part of it, like, before you went to the farm or while you're there? You're like, okay, my my job is to, and is it to get someone to essentially betray their country uh, for? reasons X, Y, or Z, um, and then keep that relationship going over turnovers with other case officers. Cause you're not going to stay there for 30 years working one guy, probably. Um, uh, so when did you understand what that job was and what is that job of a case officer?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I learned, uh, the, the, you know, the, the paper version of what it was within a week or two of being at the organization. Um, and, and the reality of it by the time I got overseas, cause it's, you know, through all the training and the role-playing and all of that, it's role-playing you know it's role-playing right mm-hmm. um you know mark Polymeropoulos has talked about you know this asset who ultimately looked at him and said you know you you probably think about me when you're getting ready to prepare to meet with me but i think about you every day because if you screw this up you know my my life is is uh gone and you can't understand that until you meet with somebody who that's true about mm-hmm. um and so the it it becomes an intellectual exercise that translates into real. But the job, as I describe it to most folks, is it's the it's probably the toughest sales job in the world. Your job is to convince somebody to commit treason against their own nation or organization for us with the potentially of, of loss of life or death uh, or uh, imprisonment for them and potentially their families uh, if they get caught. And the worst thing that's generally going to happen to me or another case officer is I might get roughed up and then given 24 hours to get out of the country. But for the most part, you know, if, if I screw up, that's going to be what's going to happen and that's not true for them. And so that becomes an an incredibly intense responsibility uh, that we take on to, to serve those who've agreed to, to do, to serve us.
0: Yeah. Oh man. And uh, and then you go to this next assignment. You come home. Is there like a uh, decompression stop at headquarters to debrief and then study up on where you're going next and then then off you go? Or how does that work?
1: Yeah. for So for it it all depends. Right. So as you know, right. Military, the answer to almost all real questions is it depends. Um, I I went out, did this assignment for two years, had a lot of fun, really great, um, you know, uh, tour got selected for uh, a, what we call a denied area tour. So that's a, a you know, Moscow rules type operations tour. Um, and so when when you get selected for one of those roles, you have a whole nother training pipeline you have mm-hmm. to go through to learn to operate in that environment. And so if, if going to the farm that first time is, um, you know, getting your undergraduate degree in uh, espionage, getting ready to go to uh, a denied area tour is grad school. Mm. and it's learning all the tools techniques and tradecraft to operate against services that are as good as us in places where they have home court advantage mm. and um and so that that training pipeline and the language pipeline for that particular assignment was two full years Wow! for me uh between those two assignments wow uh, and and then then we ultimately and and in fact they had selected two of us uh for one slot and put both of us uh through um, the language pipeline together and then ultimately so we're going to select one of us for the assignment and i got that got that pick
0: wow that's amazing and you're you're still in this this transitional period between uh old school Spycraft, I would say, and modern day. They hadn't even invented some of the ints yet, I don't think, in this uh, right. mid-90s period yet. We don't even have, I don't even know if anybody even used the term open source intelligence back then or whatever. Signals was something different. Uh, you know, I mean, it was the same, but it was the, obviously there's not as many of these types of platforms to uh, to exploit and, and, and get information. Um, so you're in this time where you're really focused on some old school tradecraft that people have been doing 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s.
1: 100% old school tradecraft and going to assignment where I know I'm going to be covered up with uh local surveillance uh on an ongoing basis uh and and learning how to op- or not learning having to operate in that particular environment uh in a place um where they were very, where we were very concerned about the possibility of flaps you know so, so it's a so flap. we had some yeah flap of where where you cause a a problem with uh, that rises to the diplomatic level uh, of hurting the relationship uh, or the reputation of our country there, okay. and so we had some pretty tight rules of engagement. Uh, diplomatic we were, flap, yes, yeah, diplomatic flap. Okay. So we were we we weren't we were restrained on what we were allowed to do internally, in addition to being covered up by the uh, local service, pretty Jeez. well.
0: And how long is an assignment like that if you uh if if you're not uh, either compromised, be it any fault of your own or not, regardless, uh how long is that assignment uh with those two years of training? What do you ex- how long are you expected to operate in that kind of an environment? It was a two-year assignment. So two years over there.
1: Yeah, when I think about the cost uh, of that and then you know the the return to the organization, I sometimes wonder if the math is is worth it. You know, two years of full-time training for two years uh there. Um, but but we we went out and we did the job that we were asked to do and 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 did it well so yeah
0: amazing what what lessons did you take from that uh, experience um personal or professional lessons
1: yeah i mean one of the biggest well it, it was interesting um Knowing that you have audio and video coverage potentially in your house, um, it <laughs> forces you to grapple with some interesting stuff at a relationship <laughs> level with your your spouse. And and uh, I remember one day we we lived in a tall skinny house, and and we had our first child in that particular assignment. And and so the the um, the baby was on the third floor with a baby monitor. We were on the second floor, uh, and and we could hear um, the staff in the kitchen talking through the baby monitor because it turned out it was on the same frequency as uh, the, the, the baby monitor in the, in the baby's bedroom was, and there was no monitor downstairs. And so we, you know, we, uh, dealing with that was a lesson we had to work our way through. And then the (laughs) other one was, um, this is where I really, it sunk in that perception is reality, right? So my intent, uh, of actions did uh, sometimes wouldn't matter. It was the folks watching me's perception of my intent that had way more import, And so if I if I talked to the wrong person in the wrong way, I could put them in jail without ever knowing it because they could be perceived as having done something with me because I'm being surveilled. Mm -hmm. And so learning to operate in a way that attempted to control the opposition's perception of how I was operating um, was was interesting. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you learn some lessons when you pissed them off. Uh, As well, you know they they uh, they kept stealing the mirrors off my vehicle, so that I couldn't use the mirrors to spot surveillance, and then I'd have to go buy mirrors back, (laughs) reinstall mirrors on my vehicle.
0: No kidding.
1: Yes, and so we had you know things things like that. Um, And then the last lesson probably was uh, the the bonding you do with others who are serving in in really difficult environments, and what is you know when you come together and 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 serve in those ways together, uh, it builds a special
0: and unique bond. Yeah. Amazing. And then you come back and what's, uh, what's next for you?
1: I actually didn't come back. Uh, I went directly to my third uh, posting, okay. uh, which was in another um, in, in capital city. You know, all of all of my particular assignments were in capital cities. That's not always, always true. Um, but this one, if the first one was a uh, a high threat post and the second one was a denied area post, this was a uh, low threat, classical, a uh, large, metropolitan area that had access to everything Mm. um, that you could, you know, desire Um, all the targets, all the interesting work, all the dysfunction of a big bureaucracy, you know, it was a large station. um, And, uh, and so that, that really began kind of me thinking about my, my path out because I knew my next assignment uh, was probably going to be back at headquarters my next assignment was going to be moving into, um, a, a headquarters management role. Um, you know, I was, I was 30 at this point in time and was a GS 13. Um, and looking at that path from 13 to 15 and looking at the path from 30 to 50 and going, yeah. okay, you know, going fast was good. Staying for the next 20 years, doesn't look quite so much fun, mm-hmm. uh, and figuring all that out. And, and, uh, ultimately, um, it was a frustrating tour. Um, I wasn't as successful about it. I didn't have any, I didn't have good mentoring in that timeframe and I didn't know how to seek it out well. Mm. Um, And so um, ultimately that assignment was what uh, caused us to, to step out of the organization.
0: Uh, And did your wife go with you or did she stay, stay in for a few more years?
1: So it's, it's, it's interesting. So she went with me. She, she had actually gone on uh, what we call LWAP, leave without pay um, when our second child was born. And so when I resigned, it turns out she was still on LWAP status and it just fell through the cracks. And she stayed on LWAP status for probably four more years. Um, without us ever even knowing she was still on LWAP status, her LWAP status just expired and, and, you know, um, she lost her clearances and stepped, you know, was just done mm. and never having, having gone back. Um, and so you know we we moved back to the states, moved uh, to the East Coast, went to grad school and and then stepped into um uh, the the private sector right as 9-11 happened.
0: yeah um where were you You were home yeah. by that point then?
1: Yeah, I just gotten home and uh, um and had called everybody and was like, wait, do do we come back? What do we do?" And um, you know, we had two kids by then, and my wife was pregnant uh, with our third. Um, and you know, I talked to to my buddies that were still in and they said, look, it's, it's totally up to you. Like if you, if you want to get back in the fight, you can, but your situation's changing with your, you know, with the kids and, and that sort of stuff. And, um, we got this, if you're not ready to come back and we just decided not to, not to come back. And I was pretty sour at the organization right then. Mm-hmm. I loved the folks I, I worked with, but I was, I was pretty sour at the organization. And so, um, it it was a relatively easy call to not go do you know uh, unaccompanied assignments in the war zones uh, that was going to you know, be everyone's life for the next few weeks you know, months years.
0: Yeah, yeah. When when was the first time you heard the the name Osama bin Laden? Was it from uh was it from your wife working in that uh, in that cell or uh, office that she was in or had you heard it before? When did you start hearing it and had you heard more and more over the years because your wife was focused on that particular threat?
1: Yeah, I'd I'd heard bin Laden's name in probably 92. Oh, wow. um, Early. uh, Along, uh, and 93. Um, with Ramzi Yousef and yeah. those guys, because uh, that that was the specific target set. She was working um, both overseas and at headquarters. Yeah. So for those, those listening, Ramzi all...
0: Youssef, he's now locked up in uh, ADX Supermax, um, yeah. Colorado, Florence. But uh, he was responsible one of the people responsible for the first World Trade Center bombing. Uh, then made it to the Philippines um, and was eventually apprehended in in Pakistan. Right. That's right.
1: That's right. But you know, working that the Bojinka plot and all that sort of stuff was that was all. Like that was stuff she was working on. So that wow. was when I first began to to uh to hear it. Um and and then obviously that intensified once we got back over um to, to the headquarters and she was working in uh CTC, the counterterrorist center at the time. And and this is how small CTC was. Her branch at the time was called Islamic Extremists Branch. Mm. Because our focus in CTC at that moment in time was on 17 November and mm-hmm. Red Army Faction and all of these other organizations, PLO and and yeah. stuff. Um, you know, we had one branch focused all on of all of the Islamic extremist organizations around the world. And obviously that radically changed over the next decade.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Did... Uh... At the time you were going through training and then afterward at these, uh, these assignments did the, the, uh, the shadow of, um, uh, of Buckley, uh, abducted in, in Beirut and yeah. in the eighties, did that, did that, did that loom large still? Did people talk about that? Were there lessons from that? Or, um, I mean, some of the people that you trained with must've obviously known him and been very familiar with that situation.
1: Yeah. So, so for us in training, they brought in groups specifically focused on both Buckley as well as, uh, the Iran, um, embassy takeover mm-hmm. the tehran embassy takeover and so we we learned a lot of lessons from those p- folks involved in those two things uh and then um there were some other uh, assassinations that had happened of um u.s military members in the philippines and others where we also had some some lessons learned mm-hmm. that uh were shared with us along nick the way Rowe. yep nick Rowe. um so so <clears throat> We got to see some of the ttps change as a result of some of those things but um it wasn't always shared with all of us in training it was shared primarily with those of us who were going to a uh, higher threat posts. the mm-hmm. um you know other than the um the iran embassy hostage situation where we all spent time learning from them um the rest of it was for folks that were going into higher threat posts
0: anybody you brought up iran did anybody talk about kermit roosevelt in 1953 iran or was that kind of not really talked about too much we
1: We didn't talk about that much much (laughs) at the time. And and it's interesting, right? So, you know, I now teach at the University of New Hampshire on intelligence studies. And and I think there was a missed opportunity for all of us to have spent a lot more time on lessons learned from some of those uh, sorts of of things, Mm -hmm. right? I think the the agency's gotten better at it over time, obviously, of uh, some navel gazing and and reflection on some of that. But um, we we did not spend as much time talking about or learning from some of those failures as as I think might have been better.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting when you think about that one. If uh, if the technology existed back then to communicate the way we can today, um, and don't even not not even change the oversight. Obviously, has changed quite a bit. But uh, even if you take that off and just. To, say, put communication in place, like almost real-time communication, uh, you know, not having to just avoid a phone ringing, but having it uh, being able to be reached all the time. Like maybe that, that turns out differently. I don't know. Exactly. Um, that's really, <laughs> yeah, that really uh, had some far-reaching implications, obviously, as, as yeah. we all it, know.
1: It's, it's pretty interesting when you think about some of those those things and, and you don't necessarily see in the moment. The, yeah. how uh, broad those implications may become, right? That that butterfly wing effect mm-hmm. uh, that then, you know, echoes for decades.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Decades, man. Um, and uh, once again, this this December, I think it was December. I might get the date wrong. Uh, let's say mid-December. Um, There's another opportunity to declassify some files that people have been waiting on for a number of years. Um, in fact, uh, Congress in 1992, I want to say, mandated that these files would be by 2017, I think it was all declassified. Guess what? The executive branch is not paying attention to the legislative branch and president Trump was going to do it, said he was going to do it. Then apparently there was some sort of a meeting with, uh, with the CIA and sources and methods. Once again, we can't declassify some of these things. Okay. And then goes over to the Biden administration last year. COVID, we need a little more time here. Since 1963 has not been enough time. Since 1992, when it has been legally mandated that we uh, that we declassify some of these things or unredact some of these things, maybe I should say. Um, yeah. Not enough time. We still need a COVID. It's literally a little more time here. And it came up again just a month ago. And what happens? still. Still. There are, are parts of these, uh, documents that are redacted. Um, so sources and methods always thrown out there. Um, it's been a long time. It doesn't do anything to garner trust or rebuild trust with the citizenry. When all these years later, these people who have been mandated by law to declassify or unredact some of these documents still neglect to do so. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that?
1: It's- it's yeah, it's pretty wild to me because when I think about, you know, here, here we are uh, 50, 60 years later, 60 years later from, from that time frame, and there cannot be any source alive today who was still at all in any way connected with, with that. Um, maybe there's some methods, but I can't imagine that there's a method that was used then that's not been identified through some other mechanism along the way. Um, so, so it leads to at least the perception that it's fear of reputational damage more than anything else, fear of embarrassment, that it's not really protecting anything meaningful, but it's protecting reputations. And that, I think, does incredible harm uh, to the institution's uh, trust level from the American public. And uh, and it's it's almost like they're just making bad chess decisions without thinking about what does it mean uh, to to the average person who's going to read or view that uh, and and weighing the calculus of of benefit versus real risk. so I, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't feel like it makes any sense.
0: I know it's a, uh, it's a very odd situation. Um, and uh, I mean, you'd have to think that at the very least that the, our intelligence agencies, whether it's CIA, FBI, and whoever um, was more aware of what was going on that day, than they let the Warren commission certainly believe or any other yep. investigations that have happened since. Um, I mean, that's like, like high level or like that's, that's the best case. I think like that, that why else, and then, of course, you can dig down into all the other other stuff as well, which I do in this next novel. So I'm so excited to send you my next novel um, because okay. there are some touch points with OSS, World War II, that transition to the CIA. Uh, what goes on in the 50s and 60s, and uh, there's kind of some family history from my main character's past that kind of comes up in the present. Um, so I'm curious what you think. Of course, it's fiction, you know. There's there's fiction all, but there's some other geopolitical stuff in there, present day that, uh, that I'm curious to get your take on. Cause I weave some, um, some Iran, Russia, China, uh, kind of geopolitics into it and kind of, uh, anyway, I'm excited to, to send it to you. Awesome. Um, well, yeah. and is it really fiction? Like, <laughs> you know, well, I don't know. <laughs> it's know? tougher, to, it's tougher and tougher to write fiction these days because all these things that are happening in real life that would have been fiction 10 years ago or science fiction 10 years ago are right. now, uh, just normal. Uh, everyday exactly. events. Uh, I mean, imagine going like, let's say 1985. If the stuff about UFOs that came out over the last two or three years had come out in 1985, that would have been on the cover of Newsweek, Time, New York Times, everywhere. People would be talking about it, would still be talking about it, even if it happened three years ago on the nightly news at 6 p.m., you know, that exactly. sort of thing, 5 p.m., whatever. Uh, but it's like oh, UFOs. Come on, of course. Yeah, next. <laughs> it's like yeah, no one cares. Yeah. Picked it yeah. it. yeah, it's so <laughs> wild. It's so it, wild. It, it is
1: wild. <laughs> Obviously, the, the pace at which information um, you know gets absorbed and and the sheer volume of information out there is is radical as well. And and so it's you know when you think about back to the declassification issue and you know conspiracy theories and you know all of that, it's 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 fodder for you as a writer Fantastic. for sure um but it's uh i think we do we do the intellect of our nation a disservice by hiding stuff that doesn't need to be be hidden mm-hmm. and we undermine the ability to hide stuff that really does need to be hidden exactly. in the long run as well
0: exactly do you know if uh, conspiracy theory was born out of the jfk assassination was it used before 1963 do you know
1: i so i i i mean I can pretend to know, but no, I, I don't know. It's I would assume it must have been used at some point in time, right? Uh, be interesting from an etymology perspective to go back and look at the language and see if there was, for example, conspiracy uh, about uh, um, Lincoln's
0: assassination. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they said right. conspiracy theory though.
1: That's what I mean, yeah. The, 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 the the, uh, the science of the words, what words were used when yeah. uh, it'd be fascinating to look
0: at that. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. I should probably weave that into this next novel could add that in for yep. some character development. I love doing, doing things like that. Um, but yeah, what a fascinating time in history that was, because I do think that uh, November 1963 was one of those pivotal points for the nation, not just our intelligence services, but our nation as a whole. And you hear people talk about losing our innocence as a nation like that sort of thing. There's, there's something to that. That's when uh, people up to that point, I think generally, from the end of world war ii to 1963 generally i would say trusted the government i would yeah I'd, 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 I'd say 1960 1962
1: to 1975 was this tremendous period of undermining of trust mm-hmm. in the government and largely driven by the government's choices yeah made along the way to manipulate conceal cajole whatever um the the public's opinion of it and and that then carries a cost forward another two decades on um that i think you see you know reverberating even today in yeah. the distrust of the government and you know you, you know it's far more easy to burn trust than to earn it
0: yeah
1: and and so i think that period of time uh still has scarred us
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you're going to like this book then. Um, And I have a little, uh, a, a theory that I read in high school. So let's say late eighties from a uh, thriller author who wrote a book in the sixties and uh, it stuck with me. And so I've woven that in. I don't go deep. On it, but I throw it in there as touch points for those who have uh, have uh, have read, you know, our fans of the thriller genre, the espionage genre, sure. that sort of thing. So I, I wove that in because I've never seen it in other book since. Um, so so I wove that in there, and I I talk about it in the acknowledgments and, and all that sort of a thing to give uh, to give credit to to that author. Um, But anyway, I'm curious what you're gonna what you're gonna think about it because it's
1: very cool. A, I'm yeah. I'm stoked uh, yeah. to read it.
0: Um and uh, and now and what's the the James Foley Foundation? I know you're in, you're uh, involved with with them these days. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm,
1: I'm on the board of the James Foley Foundation so uh Jim Foley was a journalist right we um uh we all saw his uh, horrible murder on uh on YouTube uh when the Beatles you know the the four Isis members um so brutally murdered him and this is
0: Syria and, uh, 2013 is that- 2013 uh,
1: 2013 Yeah, 2013. In the aftermath of his death, this foundation was stood up to advocate on behalf of families of U.S. hostages abroad. At that moment in time, the U.S.'s uh, hostage policy uh, was radically different than many other nations, right? Everybody's familiar with, you know, or maybe not, but at at that point in time, America's publicly stated policy was we don't negotiate with uh, terrorists. And the rest of the world's policy has been for a long time, we do negotiate with with terrorists. We're willing to, to talk to them. Our policy was rooted in the fear that negotiation with them was uh, going to embolden more terrorist taking. And there's a lot of uh, science uh, on that that says that's not necessarily true, but it was where we were at the time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Diane Foley, Jim Foley's mom became a com- incredibly uh, active advocate during his captivity to force the government to confront this policy and, and put into place ways to deal with it um, to try and get her son home. and and unfortunately she was not able to to get him home. and in fact, he's still his body has never been re- returned home. Uh, but the foundation was stood up, and we've been uh, ever since working uh, as as hard as possible with our government and other governments to try and bring Americans home. And we've been successful in that many ways. We've changed U.S law in many ways. Uh, to to do this, um, you know, and and uh, focus on bringing Americans home from overseas.
0: Amazing! I mean, people can go find out more information about that. Go with the Jim Foley Foundation dot org or uh,
1: James W Foley Foundation, uh, James W Foley Legacy Foundation, uh, and and they'll be able to to look it up there. Um, it's a tremendously powerful group of people uh, that are committed to serving this mission well, and and Diane Foley is one of the most amazing. Uh, women i've ever had the privilege to meet in my life um and and uh, i'll tell you a small story so we we know them because we went to church with their family um and so we had known jim as as well and we were at uh jim's wake and um and you know big uh, public event and we're making our condolences and mrs foley walks up to me and she puts a 20 dollar bill into my hand and I said, Diane, what is this? And she goes, Well, your son um, is raising money for his Eagle Scout project, right? And I said, He, he yeah, he is. She goes, Well, this is. I want to contribute to his Eagle Scout project. And I thought, Here we are at this event where we're cel- celebrating a wake for her son's, um, you know, murder, and she has the presence of mind to think of others in this oh. way. Uh, was just powerful. Yeah. Um, I-, I learned a lot from her. Yeah
0: amazing. And I'll put that in the show notes. People can click on that and go uh, check all that out. Well, I also want to say, I saw you post about the, uh, Browning high power a little while ago. Oh, yeah. And, uh, so I, I have one in this next novel also, but, uh, but I just took it out the other day because it, I think felt like I was forcing it in to this one. Uh, it, it, it was in my outline. It was in the whole thing. I was ready, ready get to get that scene and those set of, those sets of chapters. And it, I felt like I was forcing it in there. So I might put it back if I can figure out a way to, to get it back in there. But, um, uh, but anyway, it was going to, it was going to play a prominent role in a, in a series of chapters, but uh, it might make it back in. We'll see. But I yeah. wanted
1: to... so that, that was my issue weapon. Overseas. Oh, no way.
0: No yeah, kidding. So You're I, still using the Browning high power in the so uh, mid nineties. Yeah.
1: So I was no using the Browning way. high power as my uh, primary and then a um, Smith uh, model, you know, chief special.
0: So um, a, a was, wheel gun for you guys listening. It's so a revolver. No yeah, kidding. And a
1: backup holster was my, was my backup gun.
0: Did you wear that on your ankle? Where'd you wear your uh, backup?
1: I did on an ankle holster.
0: No kidding. How many mags did you carry with the, uh, with the Browning high power?
1: I, I carried two mags with the Browning high power, um, often in a, uh, really cheesy Velcro ripaway, away, you know, holster, oh uh, um, fanny pack holster, no uh, or in a Bianchi, uh, Bianchi, um, pancake,
0: no depending kidding.
1: On, uh, the, the, the need. And, wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. And there were times where I had, we would go to a place and I would have to give up, the um primary uh for various reasons and and have that chief special with five rounds of 38 special uh on my ankle. Uh nice. You know, and, th- and that was it.
0: Nice. I have a titanium Smith and Wesson wheel gun as well that I have a, a couple different holsters for. Um it's nice to nice to have. And uh yeah. you kind of forget it's even it's even there. But uh you know I want to get a Browning high power I think i'm gonna ask jason burton at uh Airline precision to build me one up because um, oh, yeah. i need to have one for the uh for the collection for research of course for the uh, of course research that,
1: that, i think and you, you know you gotta gotta do that just watch yep. that slide bite or yep. the hammer bite,
0: bite yep yep exactly i think all, he, he did some special stuff to him so yeah i think he accounts for some of that
1: all of us got bloodletted here nice. you know from that from that hammer bite you yeah
0: know. when did they stop carrying by. browning high powers like did what did they go it had to have been like late nineties.
1: No, no, I I know folks that carried it in Afghanistan. Really? So, yeah. So it, it was carried through the transition um into 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 Glocks and SIGs um in the GWAT. So they're definitely uh in fact, um I'm blanking on his name, uh, Dave David, um in Toby Harden's book.
0: Um I'm blanking as well, but okay.
1: Anyway, uh that he he was um he was carrying a Browning high power in Ka- in Kali Jangi the wow. day. That uh, Mike Span was killed
0: no kidding
1: Wow so so yeah we we absolutely that that that, that browning high power has uh, served us well and for decades wow
0: amazing what I wonder where those went you know if they've all been replaced there probably be a couple of guys still carrying them and that have a, a nostalgic attachment um but uh, I wonder where those went if they just go into a, a a safe somewhere and just get kind of locked up for historical purposes or if somebody can acquire one.
1: A lot of us wondered where they went, and I know at least some were lost uh-huh. and ended up in footlockers along the way.
0: As it should be, um, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Did they issue a watch by any chance at any point in time?
1: We were not issued watches um, at, at that at that point in time. Um, it was funny. We were all jealous of all the Vietnam vets and their their submariners, yeah. you know, with their um, you know Post silver bracelets and nice. you know that sort of stuff. Uh, and at th- that time, we didn't know about the issue watches that they'd given to the A12 pilots, the Acu- uh, the Bulova Accutron. Did you
0: post about that the other day? Somebody did like watches of espionage, maybe yeah, or watches somebody- of
1: espionage posted about it. I've got one on my uh, Instagram as well. OK, uh, I have, that's I Texas have Spy
0: Dad for those listening at Texas Spy yeah. Dad.
1: And and so that that watch was issued specifically to to the Oxcart uh, pilots. Wow. Uh, and it was it, it, that's a unique watch. Uh it's really neat to to pick one up. And and you can find them relatively easy easily as well. But we were otherwise we were never really uh issued a watch, sadly.
0: Got it. The Octard, I put that in the, the second novel there, because a lot of people don't know about uh about that. So it's a uh, amazing history. There's so much incredible history. Um at interesting history, complex history uh, at the CIA. Like I said, I was gonna bring those books in, but th- they stack pretty high. My agency books, I've been collecting them for so long, uh, oh, yeah. really since I was a little kid and I still have everything. So it's—it's I it's, have uh, I've quite the the stack in the library uh, inside there. Um, and I, before, I yeah, go ahead.
1: I was gonna say one of the reasons I started my, my Instagram so long ago was it, it, to sh- kind of share stories of that history with folks. Yeah. I'm a fan of the organization and a fan of the need for the organization. Would love to see um, you know, it, it take responsibility for for both successes and failures. But but at the end of the day, I want people to recognize the need for it and encourage them to, to learn the history of it. And and we need we need good people to step up to do hard things in dangerous places. And and that holds true in the special operations community, the 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 regular military, as well as the IC. Yeah. No, exactly.
0: And uh talk about Inglorious Amateurs. Where did this come from?
1: Well, that it was born out of that same uh desire to, sh- to share stories of the the agency with folks. So everything we've we've put out there um was designed to to uh, encourage folks to learn about the history and and to to support it and to raise money along the way for a couple of the agency-oriented uh charities uh that we've been uh, supporting, the Third Option Foundation and the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation. And we've gotten to do some some neat stuff along the way and and partner with folks to do it. We're on hiatus right now. We're having to, to take some time off from Inglorious Amateurs while a couple of us sort through uh, personal stuff, but we'll, we'll get it back.
0: Oh, good. Because I need to go order some more t-shirts. I think I have three t-shirts right now. I was going to order some more stuff. So let me know when it's back up. I want to get- I will. We, we've had a lot of fun,
1: fun doing that stuff.
0: Nice. And I did want to also ask you about- um, Man, when you get these guys, when these people come in to the leadership positions at the the CIA and they're appointed and, um, you know, sometimes they're interim uh, and so they don't have to go through the full process and they're in there for a little while. But then they go in front of Congress and they get you know go through that whole process and they're sitting up there in uh, in the seat um, and then they get out and then you have 50 intelligence officials Um Talking about uh, Russian disinformation that is uh, later proven to be not true, specifically with Hunter Biden's laptop, um, right before an election. Does that degrade their the They're out, you know, they're out. Private citizens, but they're probably consulting. their are on boards. They're doing the things that like generals do, and uh, and people that had intelligence agencies do after they they get out. But it seems it undermines the credibility credibility of the organization that they once served um, by doing something like that um it seems unnecessary it seems even let's just say there's no quote-unquote proof either way but you stake your reputation and, and the reputation of your agency on the line by signing some a letter or whatever it is that says this is Russian and disinformation and it ends up not being true i mean there should have at least yeah. been questions back then by those guys to say wait Maybe it's true, but maybe it's not. I'm just gonna hold off here until I have more information. But no, they don't do that. They sit up there and they sit on CNN, and MSNBC or wherever else, whoever else gives them the platform and they sign a letter and they send it to whoever they send it to, staking, putting their reputation and the reputation of the entire organization that they serve, maybe for a year, two, three, whatever it might be. Uh, what are your thoughts on on that?
1: Yeah, I think it serves their ego, right? And and I think that's one of the frustrating things about it. it the other thing, the bigger concern for me in addition to the reputational concern domestically, is actually is it giving um, the the enemy, the opposition, levers that they can now use to recruit oh, sure. their own sources uh, within our organization? You know, we talked we've talked primarily about our effort to go out and recruit sources, you know, to to work for us. But guess what? That's what the Cubans and the Russians and 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 the Chinese and the North Koreans are still doing today, and we've seen they've done it successfully. So, Anna Montes, they don't look at that as a gold mine of information that lets them pull levers to to manipulate uh motivations to recruit sources inside our own organization
0: yeah I mean, people think of Cuba and they, you know, mind jumps to Cuban Missile Crisis and Bay of Pigs and that sort of a thing, especially in regards to the agency. But they had a very robust um, uh, intelligence gathering operation focused on people at CIA, DIA, like Ana Montez. And I say, Montez, that's, yeah. yeah. So uh, what was your, uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on Cuba? What it was then in the, in say, 90s, uh, early 2000s and what it is today?
1: Uh, yeah I mean so back then they were they were really good at what they did right they, you know their ability to to recruit sources and run them and you know they they were such an active part of the the proxy Wars you know mm. that that played out over the the 80s and and 90s um you know my first exposure to the Cubans was working on a covert action program in a place that was not Cuba where the Cubans served as a proxy for the Russians mm-hmm. in an armed conflict. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had our own proxies that we, we were working with there and people can put those pieces together uh, pretty easily. Um, and, and they were, they were excellent. They were very good and imposed mm-hmm. a significant threat. Obviously today it's, it's not this, the same thing, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I don't think their capability has, has gone away. Um, and they, in, from an intelligence uh skill set perspective, they just play a significantly less important role in the in the world right now.
0: Yeah. And uh with with your your background, I know you've stayed interested in uh uh in history and intelligence operations and and uh history of the agency and emerging threats and, and all the rest of it. Uh when you look at a uh a Russia-China um relationship uh, now and going forward here, what are your, what are your thoughts on, on what's going on there? And then having, giving up Afghanistan, having Chinese maybe move into Bagram, having that lithium there, uh, gas and oil deals between Russia and China. Um, I mean, people talk a lot about that sort of thing. Now they forget that they were, uh, they shared a very long border, uh, during the cold war and it wasn't, uh, it was often contentious. Um, but, uh, what are your thoughts on that relationship?
1: You know, we have short attention spans. We think in terms of of uh, quarters, election cycles, mm. uh, presidential uh, campaigns. Um, China and Russia and Iran, you know, they think in generations, yeah. and they're willing to invest in and put into place uh, tools, assets, and programs that um, last generations. They play a much longer game than we do. Uh, we we play by better rules. Right, which which is important to who we are as a nation. It's important that we play by rules. Um, they don't allow themselves to be constrained by those same rules. So we have to learn to play differently within our rules, while while knowing that they're not. You know, I look at Africa and I look at what's taking place. The Chinese takeover of parts of Eastern Africa uh, and the the procurement of resources is a hundred percent, you know, economic warfare economic espionage and warfare combined, you know, you look at that happening in other parts of the world and you go, okay, they're leveraging public private resources, public private partnerships in ways that we can't, we're not allowed to. Um, And so we need to, we need to spend time. We need to have big, big brain people looking at that that are not constrained by current election cycles saying, what do we need to have programmatically in place that carries us through these, these generational things? you know, and and then I guess the last point on it is we tend to be too easily distracted, um, and and obviously this last decade, two decades of the GWAT, while uh, rooted in some important stuff we needed to go do, I think also served to distract us while the rest of the world continued to go do what they have always done, which is to 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 focus on their core interest and building their interest, and in, and so we need to find a, a better balance in that, in
0: my opinion. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited for you to check out this next book. I have something almost exactly like that woven in, woven in there. Um, and before I let you go, you have a little Hollywood connection going on. You work on some shows, uh, right. some, uh, some films, you uh, get uh, do some technical advising, you get veterans in there that uh, know what they're doing with, uh, <laughs> with firearms. Like, how did that, how did that come about?
1: Yeah, it's pretty funny. A long time ago, a uh, long time ago, the mid 2010s, uh a a guy reached out to me on social media and said hey um we're we're, we got a team of of uh you know soft veterans uh that are focused on helping making films and we we'd like a, a cia officer's perspective on it and of course i i thought it was uh you know a potential scam brewing but uh it turned out to to have been true and we went and we went off into the desert and we had some guys um like uh, uh, Dale Comstock and Jim Irwin mm. and uh, Mikhail Vega, and we went and made some uh, some zombie movies together, and started working on Hollywood projects. You know, flying around in in, in uh, little birds and shooting you know mini guns and riding dirt bikes and all that. Nice. I mean, so we're you know we're we're all in our forties and and not getting to do the fun stuff anymore. So it was a way to step back in and do some of that. And along the way, it just led to different connections. So we got to advise on some fun film and TV projects. Uh, you know, w- you and I share the connection of, of getting to work with Chris Pratt. Um, you know, he obviously did your, your terminal list yeah. series and, and uh, I'm the technical advisor on a film project that he is involved with called uh, cowboy Ninja Viking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that and- still going on? What happened with that one?
1: It's currently on on uh, on hold right now for budget uh, reasons, but we'll see if budget negotiations that cost us the hole in his schedule. So, I, you know, I don't know if it'll ever be revived again, but but it was fun to get to work with him a little oh, bit cool. uh, on that. I know he was he was very passionate about that actually, oh, cool. uh, getting off the ground. And then uh, now I get to to put a lot of vets on the TV show SWAT. Um, and what's great about that is for many of them, it's their first foray into acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the show is great about supporting the veterans community. So we have a lot of veterans on the crew. Um, our our lead technical advisor uh, is a, a former SWAT uh, officer, but it was also a Navy veteran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and And I've put... You know hundreds of vets on the six seasons of swat and other television shows like it where we need guys uh and and ladies who can um put on a uniform wear it well mm-hmm. follow orders operate uh you know weaponry and tactically sound uh ways and and make those shows better
0: all right so were you at the oscars did i see you in a like a, a picture on your instagram or something like that when you're a tuxedo
1: I did. Yeah, I got to one of the great benefits of this was getting to go to the Oscars uh, a few years ago and uh, and spend some time with some folks on on, uh, projects we were working on with there. And and, uh, I'm I'm very grateful for the the folks at uh, at Sony who set that up.
0: Oh, man, that is awesome. And I do want to ask you, I didn't. So what's what's the Lost Leonardo?
1: Ah, So the the Lost Leonardo was a was a great film that came out last year. It actually um, was nominated for uh, a number of uh, awards. And it was a documentary about a painting by Leonardo da Vinci that was discovered in New Orleans in the early 2000s. That uh, uh, an art dealer bought for $1,100. That was ultimately sold to Mohammed bin Salman for $450 million over the course of 15 years. And the intrigue and mystery behind all of was it really a Leonardo da Vinci painting? Where did the money come from? Who owns it? Where is it? Why does a you know, a Saudi prince on a portrait of Christ, you know, all kinds of, of uh, twists and turns in it uh, with some Russian oligarch connections in the midst of it. Uh, and so uh, I, I was, along with an FBI agent, part of the team that was helping unravel this story and how it took place uh, on the, the world stage. And, um, and there's still some unanswered questions in it. So we, we asked the audience who watches that film, the loss in to come to their own conclusions. And it's on, it's on Amazon prime and Netflix and all those places today.
0: Nice. I'm gonna go check it out. Cause I haven't seen it yet. Um, is it based on a book or something? It sounds like it would be based on a book. It's
1: not, it's, uh. it's not based on a book. There have been books written about it that, that are, uh, uh. parallel to it, but it was these Dutch uh, filmmakers that came together, uh, and found and started pulling at the threads of this story,
0: okay.
1: uh, and, uh, wanted to uncover, uh, whatever, what ultimately happened to it and and where it went. And, and, uh, it's, it's a documentary, but it has a tr- an amazing amount of intrigue and mystery in it. So it, it, uh, it flows like a, a fictional film.
0: Nice. Love it. And what else you got going on these days? What are you, uh, what's, what's ahead for you?
1: Oh uh right now just uh continue to work on film projects um working on uh with with some uh my family trying to to get some good family time in um you know that sort of stuff so
0: got it got it well i wanted to also thank you for sending me this uh robert roarock the uh, old man and the boy and uh thank you so it sits right here um uh, in the podcast studio, right here behind me, every time that I am in here with a couple other special books, uh, right there. But thank you for thinking of me and sending this. I sincerely appreciate it. It means a lot. Absolutely.
1: To me. As, as you know, I, you know, I wrote um, an article recently that was a, a series of my five most impactful books, and and that was number one on on that list. Uh, in fact, I gave my father a copy of it in 1994. Oh, wow. Uh, because I grew up hunting and fishing with my father and, and my grandfather, uh, and obviously that theme is carried throughout that that book. Um, and my dad then took that copy that I gave him in 94, uh, and re-inscribed it for my son and my son and gave it to him this year.
0: That's amazing. Um, Yeah. So it's pretty special. That is very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for spending so much time today. I really appreciate it. And you're at your, you're doing family stuff. Uh, so thank you for taking a break from that to, to sit down for a little bit.
1: No, oh, absolutely. You know, hopefully get in some duck hunting this week. We'll see how that goes. Oh,
0: nice. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I'm in, in lockdown here working on a bunch of different projects. So uh, my goal for 2023 is to get a little more organized so that I can uh, stop canceling hunts and stop canceling vacations and uh, and go and do some of those things with the family. So um, yep. yeah, but hey, man, thank you so much for all you've done uh, for the country, what you continue to do here on the outside and uh, also being such a great inspiration uh, for, for people that are coming up that are interested in these sorts of things and, uh, um, just being a, being a leader, uh, and everything that you do. So thank you. Well,
1: thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for doing what you're doing. It's, it's a lot of fun to read your books. It's a lot of fun to watch them, uh, get told on screen. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go read the terminal list before you watch it so that you can, you know, it's always a special pleasure when you get to draw in your own mind's eye, Mm. um, what you see rather than, you know, how a director may interpret it. So, so go read it before you watch it, but it's really fun to, to see all that in my my uh, sister-in-law is a, works in a bookstore and she said she's always selling copies of your book so nice. she she, she, uh, she loves when people come in and ask about it. So oh, she I love a, that. She, oh, she's really cool. stoked about this.
0: Oh man, that is awesome. Please tell her I said hi. And, uh, and I appreciate that. I mean, independent bookstores across the country. I just love, every time I go to a town and I see one, I go in and support them by buying something. Um, so, uh, yeah, please, uh, encourage everybody to visit their local independent bookstore or as they're traveling, stop in at an independent bookstore and, uh, pick something up there for the, for the plane ride home.
1: Uh, sure. will. yeah, that's, I, I appreciate you, uh, Giving that shout out to it. it is such an important role. But thank you for for having me on today. It was awesome. really a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, no, great getting to hang out for a little bit, and uh, hopefully we'll link up in person here soon. Sounds great. Stay safe, brother. All right, you too. Take care. Bye. We all know how finances can take a major hit during the holiday season. That's why you need to go to NavyFederal.org and check out everything that they have going on. I have been a member since 1996, and I could not be more pleased with how all of that has gone. Partner up with Navy Federal Credit Union to pay down credit card debt. You could get into low APR on balance transfers with their Platinum Credit Card. It's their lowest rate card, and it's a great tool to pay down debt. Navy Federal can even help get you started on your next home improvement project. They offer home equity line of credit with convenient access to funds when you need them at a variable rate. You can also get a fixed-rate equity loan that has set monthly payments for large purchases. Consolidating debt with a home equity loan could also streamline and lower your monthly payments. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, where their members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Loans subject to approval, call 1-888- 842-6328 for details about credit card costs and terms. Helocapr as low as 6.5% as of November 23rd, 2022. Black Rifle Coffee Company, the coffee that I drink every single day and powers me through my novels. Black Rifle Coffee Company set out on a mission to make the best cup of coffee that's ever hit your mug. The dream was to sell enough premium coffee to be able to build a support network for veterans, first responders, and law enforcement. Thanks to your support, all that dream has become a reality. Black Rifle Coffee is roasted by a veteran-led team of brilliant coffee graders here in the United States who work tirelessly to roast and bag the highest quality coffee right here in America. The coffee is truly one of a kind, but it's your support that gets gear, funding, and supplies into the hands of those on our front lines. This year alone, your support has helped Black Rifle Coffee Company expand our team of active duty service members, veterans, and veteran family members. Black Rifle was also able to donate over 120,000 bags of coffee to veterans and first responders in 2022. All thanks to you. Purchase at blackriflecoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first Coffee Club order. That's blackriflecoffee.com and use code DANGERCLOSE20. You can also find Black Rifle Coffee in grocery and convenience stores near you. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee. You know there are different grades of fuel for your vehicle, but did you know there's different grades of fuel for your mind? When your mind gets low-quality fuel, it gets easily distracted, fatigues quickly, and leaves you swamped in brain fog. But when it gets high quality fuel, it's packed with the electrolytes it needs to operate at optimal levels. Your brain cells fire more quickly and efficiently, which keeps you focused, energized and ready for anything. That's why Navy SEAL veteran Nick Norris created Protect Hydration. It's an electrolyte supplement that contains the optimal ratio of electrolytes your mind needs without any of the sugar, artificial sweeteners or other junk it doesn't. And people love it so much, it sold out three times in 2022. They just got some back in stock right now. Danger Close listeners can get 25% off. Visit Protect, P R O T E K T dot com slash Danger Close and start giving your mind higher quality fuel today. Once again, visit Protect, P R O T E K T dot com slash Danger Close for 25% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close Podcast. First off, this right here, this desk, badass-workbench.com. And this thing is solid. Great group of people out there, so check them out. Once again, badass-workbench.com. Hoyt, hoyt hoyt.com. Right here, this is my wife's bow, and this is the Eclipse. And this was built up for me by my buddy Caleb Brewer out at Stick Sniper Archery in Tucson, Arizona. Former Army Special Forces guy. So go check out Stick Sniper Archery, and of course check out Hoyt there. Hoyt Bow Hunting on Instagram, but Hoyt.com is the website. And this thing is awesome. So uh, thank you guys, Hoyt. Amazing. We have a archery set up here at the house the uh, crew from total archery challenge came out and set up uh, about 20 targets here and it is awesome to get outside and sling some arrows as a family so check out total archery challenge as well they're running these uh, amazing events across the country now so check them out and i hope to make it to one of those again this summer so total archery challenge check it out This book right here just came out in January by my buddy Matthew Thomas. It's called Interceptors, the Untold Story of the Fight Against the Cartels. So Matthew Thomas is a deputy sheriff in Arizona, and this is a book about his experience on the border. So uh, very cool. So check this thing out. Once again, it's called Interceptors. Matthew Thomas. Bam. Right there. Let's see. Let's go to a blade next. Look at this. So right there. Look at that thing. Ooh, yeah, this is awesome. So this was a, was a gift, and uh, it also comes right here with a training blade, and it's a place also to put your real blade while you're using your training blade. Um, but right here, so this is Headhunter Blades uh, Harley Elmore, and go to headhunterblades.com. This one is called the RAT, R-A-T, right here, and uh, just might see it in a future novel. But uh, also, so Raphael Canon and that is R-A-F-A-E-L underscore K-A-Y-A-N-A-N. And he, that's on Instagram. And he collaborated with Daniel Winkler to make the tomahawk that I gave my kids at my military retirement, and that is in all my novels and that Chris Pratt used in the Terminalist series on Amazon. So um, he got this together right here along with Harley Elmore, and, and that is H-A-R-L-E-Y underscore E L. M-O-R-E, on Instagram. So uh, thank you guys so much. This blade means so much to me. And uh, this is a nice little blade. So check that out for sure. Headhunterblades.com. And let's see. Let's go another weapon right here. Look at this thing. Look at this sap. So this thing might not look like much, but you do not want to get smashed in the back of the head with this thing. And look at that. That is awesome. has... Yeah, amazing. Uh so this is I'm gonna spell it out. B A W I D A M A N N dot com. So go check them out for sure. Andrew over there makes some incredible stuff. And uh, this was a gift, uh Ruin or Despair on Instagram. Sent this my way. So um man, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciated. And uh yeah, this thing is pretty serious just smashing it against your hand hurts. Um, Very cool. So thank you guys. That was awesome. And they also sent this. They know me pretty well. Look at that. Can you see that? Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) So that'll be on the tree next Christmas. Thank you guys. Uh, Let's see. SIG Custom Works Concierge Service. So they have this service now. And you can go on. And you can build your own pistol and customize it. So this is the one I built. It was super easy. Just jumped right on. Go to sigsauer.com and then click on that Custom Works Concierge Service. And uh, you can drop the trigger you want in there, grips you want in there, the slide, uh, optics. It's all right there uh, at the concierge service. And so built that up. Just click, 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 click. And, bam! it appeared at my FFL. So um, very cool. So Sig thank you. And then it comes with this, this box right here, SIG Custom Works. And in that box, coin, custom works right there. Uh, two extra mags right here, plus the one that it, that it comes with. And uh, check them out. SIG Custom Works, concierge service. Awesome. And let's see here. <laughs> All right. Fortitude Coffee, uh, Corey and Paul Russell right here. They just started a coffee company and uh, so it took the leap starting their own business. And so of course I ordered a bunch of coffee right off the bat and go to fortitudecoffeeco.com. Com. Check them out right here. This is the O Dark 30 right here, uh, sourced from Colombia. Uh, has the roast date on there, tasting notes on there, black cherry, caramel, tropical fruit. Uh, this is a dark roast right here. Once again, Fortitude Coffee, and it's fortitudecoffeeco.com. What else did I get here? Gosh, it smells good just doing this. I'm like i got to have some coffee right after this. This one's from Costa Rica right here, citrus, almond, and honey. Nice. I like it. This is a medium roast right there, and uh, of course got a couple stickers and a couple mugs as well, so congratulations uh, to Corey and to Paul, veterans both uh, they work with the Best Defense Foundation you've heard me talk about the Best Foundation Best Defense Foundation before. Uh, My daughter and I went out to uh, Pearl Harbor, took a group of veterans out there uh, for the 80th anniversary commemoration events and then went to Normandy with another group of World War II veterans this past June. So uh, Corey and Paul play a significant role in making all that happen. So uh, congratulations, guys, and thank you for all you do for our nation's veterans and for what you've done for the nation as well. What else? Look at this. Protect. P R O. E-K-T right here, SPF 50 sunscreen right there. They do a bunch of of supplements, and I love their hydration, their energy, their immunity, Uh, their liquid, and just drop them into a water bottle. And so that has been keeping me hydrated as I've been writing. And uh, right here sunscreen so they're doing a bunch of great stuff my buddy nick norris uh is at the helm over there so protect.com be sure and check them out so p-r-o-t-e-k-t.com check it out and look at these things what cross tomahawk's ties yeah and these ones are nice ones right here uh Jack Carr collection right here uh, or that color right there black one right there or this one or one like it anyway to the premiere of the Terminal List out in LA this past summer so you can go to officialjackcar.com and click on shop for the merch uh, So there's a bunch of stuff up there and I think that is it alright take care out there see you next time Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge Sig fan having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh but Sig was a supporter, they were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times best-selling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So, thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units, they are doing it all and they're always pushing Pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So, thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, It will never be forgotten. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Only the Dead, the sixth novel in my James Reese Terminal List series, hits shelves this spring. Go to officialjackcar.com, click on Only the Dead to pre order now for more on doug pattison follow him on instagram at texas spy dad follow me on the social channels at jack car usa official that is the website you can click on shop for the merch and sign up for the newsletter there as well and if you enjoyed this conversation be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts until the next time take care out there stay safe be strong keep fighting